Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, today we've got two big things we're talking about. We're talking about Indie Talks, the event that we had. And you were on stage with our editor, Elizabeth Thompson, talking to all the legislative leaders about what is going on, how the session's going, and we'll, uh, we'll cut to some clips from that. And then after that, we're going to talk about Deadline Day 2.0 because the first Deadline Day was skipped, but it sounds like it's actually going to happen today, right? Uh, yeah, well, we'll see, I guess. Never say never, but as of now, we're on track. All right, let's get into it then. All right, so we had our big uh, Indie Talks event. And like I said, Jacob, you were on stage with all the legislative leaders, which are from the Assembly. We've got Assembly Speaker Steve Yeager and Minority Leader PK O'Neill. And then in the Senate, you've got Majority Leader Nicole Canizaro and Minority Leader Heidi Sievers Gansert. And you were joined by our editor, Elizabeth Thompson. How did that go? You know, it went pretty well, you know, because with these kinds of things, you never know how much politicians are going to say, especially while, you know, a lot of negotiations are still ongoing. But I think leaders from both parties are willing to say a lot. Yeah. What was kind of the biggest, uh, like the, the overarching theme? Was it a lot of, uh, you know, across the aisle, we're all working together, everything's going great? There was a little bit of that. And I think people looking at a split government might assume there would be less, right? That Democrats and Republicans wouldn't be able to find anything that they agree on. But I think there's plenty of issue areas where actually they agree on a lot. A lot of what the disagreements come down to is the minutia of, well, how exactly are we going to do this thing, right? We, we want the same policy outcome. How do we get there? That's, that's where the disagreements come out. Yeah. And so we're kind of some of the big policy talking points that everyone kind of hit on. Well, just to start, you know, one of those places where the parties really don't agree is on elections, right? So the governor, before the session even started, said that he wanted to, you know, bring in voter ID. He wants to really strip back a lot of the Democrat-backed expansion of mail-in voting, for instance. And the Democrats basically say, you know, this is a solution in search of a problem. Our elections work fine. You know, there is no voter fraud. So there's no need to even pursue any of these policies, not even a voter ID, which is popular based on polling, of, you know, upwards of, you know, 70% of Nevadans want voter ID and Democrats are, are, are not budging on any of it, including that piece. So polls, including a poll that we did at the Nevada Independent, are showing us that a majority of Nevadans actually support voter ID. And the Republicans, I believe, are proposing that voter ID be added into the mix in Nevada. Are you open to at least having a conversation about that, Speaker? I, I think it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem. There's not a problem. We've got the safest, secure selection. We're a model for the country. So, you know, I would say no. I think we need more electeds. And I'm not for anyone here, but we need more electeds who will stand up and say, we're going to put country or state over party and stop with the talking points about stolen elections, about all this, when we know it's not true. So I just don't see a need to have that conversation because I don't see a problem. Assemblyman O'Neill, I suspect you disagree. What, what do you have to say? I always say I respectfully disagree. And I think some of this semantics though in the conversation. I, if we went through the bill piece by piece, I think we would find some commonalities in, but I do, and Speaker Yeager, he and I really do get along very well. Even if we do disagree, I can promise you later, we'll be joking about this and jiving each other. But I think, as you said, you did a poll. People have no disagreement with some kind of voter ID bill. And so I think some of that is the description of what do you mean by ID? I, I think you need something more strong than just a signature on a ballot 
that's being read and determined by a machine or by fallible humans that it's legitimate or not. So I think there is a, we can find common ground. I think we should find common ground and, and deliver a, you know, I disagree the one point on that we're a model for the nation. I felt to some, and talking to some Democrats who are been elected, they actually went the other way. We were more of an embarrassment when it took weeks later to actually ver validate who was elected to a position. But that's probably a lot of how we just interpret and look at things a little differently. Another big issue that's come up, and I've, when we talked to people at the beginning of the session, everyone was saying, you know, education is going to be the big issue. So what was the uh, conversation around education during the Indie Talks? Well, I think everyone is really focused in on the money right now. So based on the people-centered funding plan, which is the, the new funding formula that the legislature has been working on for years, frankly, and this goes back to the Democrats under Steve Sisolak, right? This is how long this has been in the planning phase, essentially. It's finally kicking in, and it's basically set to give K-12 schools about $2 billion more in funding this year than the previous biennium. And to put it in perspective, that's an increase of about $2,000 to the per pupil funding, right? Going from about $10,000 to about $12,000, but it's still a ways off from the national average, right? Which is about between fourteen dollars and $15,000, right? So it's a lot of money. And I think right now, both parties agree. We've, we've heard both the Democrat and Republicans say, we need school leaders, right? Superintendents to prove to us how they're going to spend this money, right? Are they going to spend it on teachers? Are they going to spend it on supplies? You know, they don't want it going to waste and they don't want it go, going to executive salaries, right? I think you'll, you'll hear Democrats and Republicans alike, and certainly we heard it on the stage, say that schools are in crisis. And so now we've reached the stage where, you know, everyone is a little reticent to say, okay, we're just going to give you a blank check. They're going to give that money if and when they're comfortable with the answers they get from school leaders. We have implemented a new way of funding to ensure, because we've heard loud and clear from people in this state that if we're going to be voting for additional money for education, that money has to go to education in a meaningful way, not in a meeting that that money comes into education and is somehow supplanting what would ordinarily go in so that we're not ever seeing meaningful increases, right? And so that is how I think you see the, the funding working. And that's where that $2 billion comes comes into play. We're seeing increased revenues in the state and that money flows into education where it should be, where it has always intended to be, but in the past has been sort of, okay, well, we have extra revenue from these sources, so we're gonna put fewer other sources into education. That's not how we should be funding education. And so for the first time, you are actually seeing that all of the money that has been designated for education is actually going to education and staying there. We need to know from these districts, how are you going to use this money? Because it does matter if we are putting those funds into education because they go into programs like Read by Three. They go into programs to support our English language learners and our special education students and to support teachers in the classroom and different programs that we have that we know have you know, success for a student achievement. And so with such a large influx of money, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we know how that money is being spent. And we're starting that process with hearings with each of the superintendents of the school districts that is designed to bring them in front of us and say, hey, we want to know how you're going to be spending this money. Next up on the kind of the topic list of things that were being discussed was uh, housing was another big, a big topic area. You know, definitely up here in Northern Nevada, there's a lack of housing. And, you know, Governor Lombardo was talking about federal land buybacks to, to get more land for development out in Vegas as well. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think at the on the legislative side, you have each party sort of taking a different angle on how to solve the problem, right? If, if the problem is that, you know, rents are too high, that median home prices are rising too fast, then you ask, you know, what's the solution? So for the Democrats, there's been a tepid embrace, we'll say, of stuff like rent control, right? Sort of maybe limited rent control, not across the board, but maybe for, say, elderly people on fixed incomes, right? If you're on Social Security, maybe rent control for these people, but, but not for everyone. Or we've seen a, a sort of push to basically reform the state's summary eviction laws. Right now, the onus is on the tenant to fight a summary eviction. And basically what the Democrats are proposing is switching it so that it's the landlord's responsibility to file first to get rid of the tenant. And they can't just evict them without due process. Um, on the other side of that equation, the Republicans say that, you know, the, if, if the problem is that housing is too expensive, well, then that's the supply problem. So we need to look at supply side solutions. You know, what does that mean is a bit more nebulous. Republicans will argue that they need to make it easier to build, that builders need more incentives, that that's where the government can step in, you know, loosening regulatory red tape, all that kind of stuff. And then, like you mentioned, though, there is this whole broader piece of like in Las Vegas, right? Well, that's so much of the land that they would develop on is frankly owned by the federal government. And, you know, there's there's other issues like water that instantly come into play. Whereas in northern Nevada, right, you know, you look at a city like Reno, it becomes so difficult to build out that you have to build up, but actually doing infill and, and building in sort of historic Reno neighborhoods, you, you run into very strong local groups who do not want multifamily development. They want to protect single family zoning. And so it, it becomes a, a pretty serious political issue at that point. And so unclear how stuff like that gets solved in the short term, but certainly it's something on legislative leaders' minds. So we've had a number of bills that have come through the committees over the years. And I think we all agree that we need to have attainable housing some individuals are switching from affordable to attainable. So what can you afford to do? But you know, something that the, the former governor did do was to put the $500 million in the Homings Nevada to be able to leverage that to create more housing. And when I looked at that, I did quite a bit of analysis on, on that 500 million and how it would be leveraged and if it would work. And in talking to some of the developers in Reno, it made sense. And so that's something I think that had a lot of bipartisan support at the affordable housing le level. When you look at some of the legislation that comes through, that's landlord tenant, I think there's a lot of nuances and I, you know, not someone who's been in that business, but I know when we look at things like rent control, typically people don't invest in their properties if they have a cap on how much they can charge for rent. And so we have to be really cautious about policies like that because we want to make sure that people do invest in properties and people continue to, to expand properties so that we have more housing. So it's a big piece of this is the supply side. I think rent control will dampen the supply side. We need individuals to create more housing, to build more housing, and we all to make, also want to make sure that those who have housing keep them, the houses and the, the apartments and so forth maintained. So I think that would be a threat to having good housing. And again, the supply side, I think we need to make sure that local governments can streamline their processes, that there's land available, and then using the state and federal dollars to be able to leverage to build things at a lower cost to make those, those housing entities or those units more affordable. All right, Jacob, well, thanks for going over all of that. And now I'm actually going to run and you are going to be joined by your two other colleagues at the legislature and you'll be recording late tonight as the bill deadline is finished. So thanks so much for staying up late to record that. Thank you. I guess you're welcome.
So we are now at the end of a very long legislative day where we have introduced all of the bills. That's it. That's all of them, probably, except for the exempt ones. Sitting with me now are legislative reporters Sean Galanka and Tabitha Mueller. How are you? We're tired, but I think we're pretty good. Doing well. I love that there are more bills now. There are so many more bills, and I guess let's just jump right into it. So let's start with you, Tabitha. Top lines, what are the big things we saw today that you saw? So a couple of the things that I was watching was SB 419, where we actually had the formal bill language for what has been referred to as the HOPE Act from Senator Fabian Donate. And basically, that would expand Medicaid eligibility to all Nevadans, regardless of citizenship. And it also do some other things, too. It's a lot more comprehensive than that. It kind of would propose establishing private-public partnerships to improve healthcare outcomes. It would offer healthcare groups looking to expand their facilities or the number of doctors, some like tax abatements. So that was one. We saw a lot of landlord bills, um, one in particular that would basically prohibit a landlord from requiring a tenant to pay any fees for performing things that would keep the house as habitable, right? So like if you need mold removed or your kitchen sink fixed. So that'll be interesting to see what happens. And then there was also a bill, you know, we've been talking a lot about abortion rights this legislative session. And there was one from Assemblyman David Orntlicker that would make any state law regulation for abortion supersede city and county ordinances. And it would prevent healthcare facilities from giving deceptive statements about what services they provide. We talk about those kinds of deceptive statements as we're talking about things like crisis pregnancy centers, Absolutely. right, which don't actually give abortions, but they do sort of give this. And they, they kind of steer people toward not getting an abortion, right, or, or give false information or misleading statements sometimes. It, it, and it kind of varies from facility to facility. Gotcha. Well, Sean, what I want to ask you about are some of the governor's bills, right, because the governor gets a limited amount of bill requests. So I'm curious, what did we actually see from his office today? So glad you asked, Jacob. In fact, the governor gets just five bills to enact his policy agenda. Only five. There's there's a ton more for the governor's finance office. Those are basically related to you know budget provisions, that sort of thing. But he, the the governor himself, he gets just five. And we saw we've seen two of those introduced already. Those were his big omnibus education and school safety bills. But the three we saw today basically relate to elections, criminal justice, and government government modernization. So the elections bill, we already know that's a non-starter for Democrats, but it proposes things like voter ID, moving up mail ballot deadlines, repealing universal vote by mail. But again, Democrats aren't open to those ideas. His major criminal justice bill similarly acts on, on things that Democrats might be hesitant to accept and, and we could see hashed out in the negotiating process, but things like increasing penalties for fentanyl possession. Finally, with Governor Lombardo's government modernization bill, this this sweeping state government bill would would really do a massive amount of things. I don't think we've really fully processed everything that it would do yet, but some major level changes that I've noticed already, the establishment of cabinet level secretaries within the governor's office, as well as a state chief innovation officer. It would replace the Department of Employment Training and Rehabilitation with the Department of Workforce. And it would create the Nevada Way account. Uh, if you remember, Governor Lombardo referred to this as the Nevada Way Fund during his State of the State address. So really just kind of taking every single change that the governor is seeking in terms of the operations of state government, and it's all in this one 185-page bill. Okay. Well, here's what I want to ask about, because there were like 130 bills introduced today, which is a lot for those listening at home. But what I want is one extremely niche bill that you are very interested in. And we'll start with you, Tabitha. Oh, man. 
I think for me, and I, it was it wasn't introduced today, but I think one that we're gonna that I'm actually very interested in is AB two fifty, and what I would essentially do is any price negotiation with Medicare would set that price of drugs here in the state at that same level. So in you know if the price of Medicare drugs for folks who are using that program is thirty five dollars for insulin, everyone else in the state would have access to that. That's going to be a big piece of legislation that we're going to see a lot of public comment on. It's going to be a lot of thought. And I think it's going to rep it really represents this kind of push from Democrats to say, hey, we need we we want to lower health care costs. And yet the push back on that is going to be, you know, from pharmacy companies, larger corporations that are saying, hey, look, like these drugs are not cheap to produce. And we already give rebates to pharmacies that are that are putting them out. So Essentially, the state should be using the federal government vis-a-vis -vis Medicare to lower drug prices through negotiations. Yes. Gotcha. All right, Sean, what's your niche interest? Well, who could have seen this coming, Jacob? But the, the Tesla tax bill diverting dollars away from Story County bill, it's here. There's been, there's been rumors about it. We, we wrote a little bit about it in, in our, our Tesla deep dive, kind of exploring how could this new Tesla deal affect the state, affect Story County, affect other local governments? And finally, it is here, a bill from Senator Heidi Sievers-Gansert, which, although it talks somewhat vaguely about tax abatements and these you know, certain statutes regarding tax abatement deals and the shuffling around of tax dollars, really what this bill would do, it would take Tesla tax dollars that the company is set to pay to Story County starting next year, and it would divert 80% of those funds, sending 60% to a regional fund, basically, meant to address basically regional infrastructure needs. This is kind of tied to the fact that so many Tesla Gigafactory employees live in Washoe County and not Story County. So, you know, Washoe County is kind of footing the bill for servicing these residents. And another 20% would go to a statewide economic development fund, basically leaving Story County with just 20% of the revenues that they have been waiting 10 years to receive. I see. And, and as I expect, Story County specifically did not react super well to the idea that they would have to give up this tax abatement money. Right. Prior to this bill officially coming out, I think folks in Story County knew that this was coming. They knew this was on the horizon. And they said, we hear this proposal to take our tax dollars away and we, we don't think this is okay because we need these tax dollars to pay our debts, to pay for infrastructure. I mean, Story County has buildings that are built in the 1800s that they're still using as county government buildings. They have aging water pipelines. And so, you know, they say we need these funds to, to pay for our, our county services. Okay. Well, and I will indulge myself, listeners, with my own niche interests, and that's AB 431, because let me tell you, anyone watching the 2021 legislative session might remember this little thing called land-grant institutions, where there was essentially a fight between UNR and UNLV over who could define themselves as a land-grant institution. The specifics are not important. What is important is that it pitted UNLV against UNR. Well, Get ready because it's back, because AB 431 would functionally give preference for construction projects at whichever university campus has less square footage per student. Now, there are 10,000 more students at UNLV than there are at UNR, which means there's, generally speaking, more square footage per student at UNR, therefore giving preference to buildings at UNLV. So, 
I have, a, I have a question though. I have a question about what's actually left on the table because we got 130 bills today, right? And today was the legislative bill introduction deadline. Technically, it's been kicked by a week, but there are exempted bills, right? This isn't technically everything. So what do we think is still floating out in the ether? Well, for example, Jacob, one of the bills that I saw waived through the deadlines today was a bill from Senator Lang relating to the film industry. Now, I've heard some some rumors, nothing confirmed yet, that this is related to film tax credits. And we've heard a lot just prior to the session that folks are seeking to make Nevada and, and perhaps Las Vegas a sort of Hollywood 2.0. And so increasing those tax credits for film production is a way of, of bringing those film companies here to produce their movies. And so that's a bill I'll be looking to see if it includes that kind of language and, and whether we're going to see that, that discussion this session. And we should say that once bills are exempted from these deadlines, they can basically show up whenever, including the 11th hour. Absolutely. And also, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is nothing is ever really over until the end, until signy die when the legislature ends, right? Like anything can happen. Gotcha. Well, it's over when it's over. Sean, Tabitha, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Tabitha Mueller and Sean Galanka for being on the show today. This show was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.